This is Getting Into It with Grant, so let's get into it. So for this episode, I want to talk about what it's like to work on top secret engineering projects. I won't share anything I'm not supposed to. There are some things that I can't share with anybody uh, for a very long time, but I will share what I'm able to and what my experience was working in top secret engineering because I don't know how else a person would know if this is something that they're interested in working in or not. So early in my career, I lived in southwestern Ohio. If you know anything about Ohio, there's not a whole lot in the southwest part. Dayton, Cincinnati, Columbus. I grew up in the cornfields in the middle of all three of those cities. So to go out and do anything, I had to drive for quite a while, but I was able to go to college down there, and my undergraduate degree was in computer engineering. Now, I could do a lot with a computer engineering degree, but maybe not in southwestern Ohio. The amount of opportunity for that type of work was really not uh, as large as it was in other places in the United States, like Dallas, which is where I'm at now, or on the West Coast, or up in New York. So I really had to take the jobs that were available in my area because this was well before uh, remote work was really a thing. Wright-Patterson ensured a massive amount of opportunity in the defense contracting industry with some of the players like uh, North Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Ball Aerospace, and Sierra Nevada Corporation being right in the Fairborn, Ohio area. So when I went to go into the job market, everything that I saw available was for embedded software engineering because that was kind of the thing that was being done in that area. With all this being the case, I really didn't get to pick what I wanted to spend my time in as a software engineer. I ended up in embedded software engineering because that's what the market dictated I, I do. Uh, because I really didn't want to relocate outside of Ohio. Maybe that is something I would change for myself if I could go back and do everything again. But things are what they are, and so I stayed in Ohio and decided to go work in embedded software engineering for a defense and aerospace company. I did both internships and full-time jobs at a couple of different companies in the area, but I'm going to focus on the full-time jobs because that's actually where things started to get interesting for me. I didn't actually get a security clearance while I was an intern. Go figure. That makes a whole lot of sense. So I didn't get to, to work into the top secret areas until I got into full-time salaried work. And this is where things begin to get interesting for me because I had no idea what engineering was doing in the world or what it was really capable of just based on my undergraduate degree. I knew I could write software, I could make computers do things, but the power of engineering comes when you take a bunch of different disciplines and combine them all together. One of the first interdisciplinary engineering teams that I worked on was at Sierra Nevada Corporation. And if you can think back, uh, there were a bunch of news articles, some on Wired.com, that discussed the program BAMS, Broad Area Maritime Surveillance. And that program was all about the RQ-4N Global Hawk going around and doing reconnaissance missions around the globe. RQ-4N stands for Reconnaissance Unmanned Fourth Generation for the Navy. So this is a, a, a very specific type of Global Hawk that was tailored for maritime surveillance operations. And a lot of the contract work was uh, done for or through Northrop Grumman, who was the actual company that entered into the agreement with the government to be able to provide the solution for the Navy. Where I fit into this whole conglomeration of defense contractors is at Sierra Nevada Corporation, specifically working on the software that was in an embedded box inside the Global Hawk, which would perform, uh, it was called ELINT, Electronic Intelligence, capabilities for the aircraft. 
and I'm just going to call Sierra Nevada Corporation S&C from here on out because it's a lot easier to say. But S&C's obligations for the contract uh, really consisted of three teams, maybe some more, give or take, but three really functional areas of engineering. The first was mechanical engineering. We had a group of people who were building a metal box that would sit up into the aircraft, and it was environmentally controlled so that the electronic components inside and the antennas would all work just fine, whether they were up at 60,000 feet or down at sea level. The second group were electrical engineers, and they produced all of the antennas, and they also put together the electronic components inside of this box so that it could collect electronic information from the area that was being emitted by ships down in the ocean. And the third part of this whole equation were the software engineers. The software engineers were really the ones that were producing the brains of the operation. So you could have the box and stuff sitting in it, you could have the antennas that would collect information, but then you've got to process it somehow. And that's where the embedded software engineering came in. And I'll try to explain this as generally as I can, just to give you all an idea of what types of stuff we did. Can't talk about specifically what the box did inside, but in general, we just got gobs of information. And so our job was to take this information, process it in what's called real time, and that doesn't mean what you think it means at first glance. It doesn't mean that we're just processing the information really fast, so fast that you can't really tell that it took time to be processed. Real-time just means deterministic. So we would run on an operating system called VxWorks, which is a quote-unquote real-time operating system. And all it does is ensure that within certain increments of time, processing is occurring. In other words, the outcome is deterministic. You can know exactly whether or not you're going to be able to process all the data that you need to in the time frame that you have to process it. So that's it. That's the long and short of where I lived in that program. And nothing that I've shared up to this point is sensitive or secret or classified whatsoever. These are all things that I am more than open to talk about and am allowed to. So at this point, I really want to dive into what a day in the life of an embedded software engineer in top secret defense looks like. But to get there, you kind of need to understand a little bit about classification levels. There's really only three levels of classification that I'm going to talk about uh, and that I was exposed to. They are confidential, secret, and top secret slash SCI, which we'll talk about that in a second. At the confidential level, uh, I actually didn't see a whole lot of things classified here because a lot of the stuff that we worked on would have been much more damaging to the United States if the information got out. You may be able to guess from the nature of the BAMS program. It relates to the Global Hawk. That was pretty cutting edge stuff back in 2008, 2009 timeframe when I worked on it. That's not going to be classified at the confidential level. Very damaging or damaging stuff is going to be classified at the secret or the top secret level. And on the BAMS program, there really wasn't a whole lot of stuff that ends up getting classified. It's a very small part of the program is how we wanted to run it so that we were free to work on this thing wherever and however we wanted to. The next level of clearance I want to talk about is secret. A lot of the work that I did happened in buildings that were rated for secret level classification uh, so that we could just do our jobs in the office and then have the secret conversations that we needed to with our doors and our office closed with the appropriate parties present. So the facility is rated to be able to have those conversations, but that doesn't mean everything in there is secret. You still have to follow the proper procedures and protocols in order to have the secret level conversations. The next level, top secret, this is where a lot of the very interesting and cool stuff happens. I can't tell you what that stuff is, but I can say that whenever I worked on top secret um, projects, I had to go into a room 
and the room had no internet, it had no windows, and it had one door that was locked at all times and had a passcode that you would type in to get into the room. Every time you wanted to get into the room, the passcode would scramble itself, and so you had to type in the same digits to get in there, so it was like a randomized padlock entry system. You had to leave your phone and your keys and anything electronic outside of the room. You weren't really allowed to bring anything in, and you definitely were not allowed to bring anything out of the room that you did not bring in with you. So this begs the question, how did we write software and test it on our device? Well, the secret is when you were working on a top secret program, you just lived in the room that had no windows or internet and only one door to get into and out of. You couldn't store your code in a version control system that was hosted in the cloud. You weren't writing anything that ran on AWS. More than likely, you had a device that was custom built by your company and you were writing software to run on that device. Or the software that you did write was stored all within that room on a local server and version control. It is unbelievably difficult to write software in that kind of an environment. But let me tell you, I was a very good engineer at that time because I didn't have Google at my disposal. So I had to commit everything, every nuance of the language into my brain in order to write software and get something produced that I could build and run and test all day long. So you do pick things up and remember them better when you don't have access to the internet, but I'll tell you, uh, it's not my preferred way of working, that's for sure. So once again, thankfully, uh, the program that I had worked on wasn't completely top secret. Some of the stuff that I had worked on was really just kind of like a sensitive thing for the company, sensitive intellectual property for the company. And so even though it was in a secure room, the box itself was in a secure room, the software that I was writing, it wasn't classified to any level. So I could actually use a secure copy and transfer over the network, the binaries that I would build, and they would go to a server down in our lab that I could badge into and type in my code, get access to the room, and then actually load my software onto a version of the box that we were building to go into Globalhawk and test it locally there with all the antennas and stuff that I needed. All things considered, it was a pretty fun job. Uh, I did actually really enjoy it, but after doing that for a number of years, it did get old and I wanted to branch out and kind of learn new things in the industry rather than staying in embedded software in defense contracting for my whole career. And the last thing that I think uh, I should mention here, since we're talking about top secret work, is the SCI level clearance. So when you move up from confidential to secret to top secret, at the top secret level, there's a thing called SCI, or sensitive compartmented information. The SCI level is not above top secret. It's kind of like if you could take top secret information and then create a compartment for other pieces of top secret information that you wanna keep separate from one another, that's what the SCI level means. For some programs, it makes sense so that any individual can't understand the whole program, that you'll compartmentalize pieces of the program, even though the whole program itself is top secret. So I guess in some ways it does feel like it's above top secret because it's top secret with a need to know, but in reality, it's really just at the top secret level. So if you are cleared for TS, then you can get access to SCI information when you need it. So moving on to a day in the life of. What was it actually like for me to work on this program? Every program is going to be run slightly different depending on what company you're working for, who the program manager is that's managing the program, and what product you're delivering. Some things that you're building may be uh, like an independent device that you 
own in its entirety and you're building and writing software for. Other things may be like a box that gets mounted to the side of a mine resistant vehicle that you're testing out in, you know, another country or, or somewhere else. So you have to physically travel on site to actually test your box in, in production. Whereas other things that you're building, you don't have to go and visit a location to test them. You can do that in a lab, in a secure room in a building, for example. And I worked on many different top secret programs. BAMS wasn't the only one. BAMS just happens to be the example that I use most frequently because BAMS as a program was not classified. Only some things within the program were classified. Other things that I worked on, uh, I'm not even allowed to talk about the existence of the program because that itself is classified. So I'll stick with BAMS for these examples. But generally, the way my days went was uh, I'd wake up in my apartment and uh, get up at 8 a.m., eat my breakfast, and go into the office building. And when I got into the office building, I would go to the room that was assigned to me in the office and kind of, you know, drop my laptop there, hook up to the network, and I worked on a physical device, a copy of which I had in my office. So I didn't have to bring uh, my work home with me, so to speak. I actually couldn't take it out of the building. It was in there, and it was in my office and locked. So I'd write software and test it on the device, in uh, pretty much an emulation setting. So I didn't have live antennas that I would be using. I would be using mock software that emulated the antennas. And uh, the software that I wrote would like use fake data. And it was the best that I could do in my office. And uh, when I did get to a point where I wanted to actually test the software I had written on, on real hardware, I would go down to the secure room, which is where our lab was located. That's the room I was talking about earlier that I had to badge into and type my uh, code to get the door to unlock. You know, I go into the room, uh, I would load up the software that I had written onto the actual real device in the lab and test it and see if it was all working. And uh, if it wasn't, I'd go back, troubleshoot some more, make some changes, and then reload it on the device downstairs. And uh, that was pretty much what my day-to-day -day was. I worked with a team of Let's see here, I, there were four other engineers that were software engineers on the team. And then I worked with a couple of electrical engineers, two or three. And then I actually never met or worked with the mechanical engineers, even though they were in the same building. Our domains of engineering just never really crossed. So there's no reason to go out of my way to meet with them and talk unless it was just like, hey, it's lunchtime. Let's go get away from the office for a second and, and eat, right? After lunch, I'd come back to the office, I'd continue doing the same thing in the afternoon, and then I would leave usually four or five o'clock, depends on who was in the office and what work I was doing and if I needed the lab, and then I'd go home. And the wonderful thing about this job was that I couldn't bring my work home with me. So if I had to work late for any reason, I was physically in the office, and thankfully the program itself had uh, deadlines, yes, but they were ones that we could achieve. So I had absolutely no reason to work overtime. About the only time that I did stay late was when we had major deliverables or we were giving a demo to somebody in the Navy the next day or you know that month. So we'd work extra hard to make sure that the product was ready for the demo and that we were hitting all the milestones that we had defined up front for the life of the program. And I don't know what you're thinking at this point in the story, if this is something that is interesting to you or if it sounds completely and totally boring. The magic of working on a top secret program has nothing to do with all of the, the meta work, right? Like when you go into the office, how you're writing your software, the people that you're working with, none of that is really the selling point of the work. 
The selling point is the program that you're working on. The stuff that I built in defense contracting was the most outrageously cool stuff that I've ever thought of in my entire life. In fact, I remember when I was a teenager, I had an idea. I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this thing existed? You could you could do these certain things. I had this whole idea in my head of something that I would like to build, and it was like ultra cutting edge. It wasn't something you could just go buy off the shelf. It was like a completely, totally custom idea of how to hack into systems. Well, I eventually worked on a program, and my idea from a teenager was the program that I was working on. And obviously, I can't talk about what that idea was, but it was just so ridiculously cool to me that things I had thought of as a teenager were like top secret programs that were funded by the government and were being researched, and that I got to actually participate in the building of one of those ideas. So the work itself is something that you are not going to find anywhere else in the industry, in technology. Nothing that you work on is going to be boring. It is always going to be creative work. It's going to be things that don't already exist somewhere in the world. And so you're going to have to think of the problem, build the solution, and try and do it with probably as little resources as possible. Like I said, some of the stuff I worked on were embedded devices. So in that world, you don't have the infinite scalability that you get with AWS or GCP. You have a restricted and limited amount of memory and compute cycles that you can utilize on your hardware. So you have to take all of that in consideration as you're processing your data or your solution. You get to pick what level of hardware you want to throw at the problem. But that comes with trade-offs in terms of uh, the heaviness of the product that you're building or the cost. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you have to consider when you're working on these programs. And it is literally from the bare bones, which is why you need so many different engineering disciplines to collaborate on building the solution. Can't just usually buy hardware off the shelf and throw it at your problem like you do in commercial software development. In commercial software development, a lot of times you're just piping data from location A to location B, and you may be performing some transforms on it while it's moving through the infrastructure. But you're not usually creating brand new concepts out of thin air. You're not usually solving problems that have never existed anywhere else, unless you happen to be on one of the very special innovation teams inside a company. But those innovation teams are solving business problems. They're not thinking of ways to exploit mobile devices. They're not thinking of ways to hack into infrastructure. They're not trying to build missile systems or weapon systems. A lot of those things are really cool programs to work on, and they're not just cutting edge in terms of like the language that's being used to write the software. They're cutting edge in terms of like scientific concepts that we've been wrestling with and researching and can now solve. I'll just use GPS as an example here. You may or may not be aware, but the military has a much stronger grade of GPS than the civilians do. When you are working with GPS systems for the military, you get millimeter precision accuracy on your, your GPS location. You don't get that with civilian systems. The amount of accuracy and the type of work that you work on with military systems is just something you will never encounter in the commercial world. And I'm saying that with firsthand experience here. So again, the selling point of working in top secret research in defense programs is not the fact that you live in a, a box with no windows or doors with the same couple of other people working on a program day in and day out all day long, right? The cool stuff is what you're actually getting to build. So do I miss that work? 
yes and no. Um, I miss it only because it was a lot of fun to build those things. But honestly, I've been there. I've done that work before and I'm ready to move on and would not want to jump back into it. Even though it was super fun, uh, the biggest downside for that work, in my opinion, was that I was definitely not compensated as well working in defense as I have been in the commercial industry. And so I've learned a lot about what motivates me in my career as I've jumped between different jobs and different industries, found out what level of red tape I'm comfortable with, what level of pay I like and enjoy, and um, how to balance all of those things with the type of work that I'm doing. It's taken me 15 years to get to this point, but uh, hopefully by hearing from my experience here, you can learn a little bit about yourself and maybe decide to give this stuff a shot and see if it motivates you as well, or maybe not. It's your choice, but I'm sharing it with you so that you at least have an insight into it because I think getting accurate information about this type of work is very difficult and the number of people who have shared their experiences here are probably not as deep as they are for any other industry that you could work on in America. So this is a starting point. There's a whole lot more that I could say, but I want to wrap this episode up. So if you've got specific questions about working in defense contracting or some of the things that I did work on, send them to me at hello at grantdryden.com or tweet me at tweets of grant. I look forward to hearing from you and we'll see you again next time.